Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 22 and 23. The message is entitled, The Lordship of Christ. Paul prayed that the Ephesians might come to obtain a personal full knowledge from God, the Father, through the Son, that would produce wisdom and revelation, causing their eyes to be enlightened in verses uh, 15 down to 23. He told us to the hope of his calling, to the riches of his glory, of his inheritance, the saints, to the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he said, according to the working of his mighty power, the very same one that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand, and seated Christ above all angelic ranks. This is one continuous sentence in chapter 1 here from verse 15 to 23. Now Paul, at the end of his prayer, emphasizes the lordship of Christ in three ways. Let me read here. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Lordship of Christ is described in the three following ways. First, you have the preeminence of Jesus in view of all the things in the church. The first part of 22. The preeminence of Jesus. Secondly comes the position of Jesus in view of the church. The rest of 22 and the first part of 23. And then thirdly we have the person of Jesus in view of the body of the church. The rest of 23. The preeminence of Jesus in view of all things in the church comes first. Notice the Apostle Paul here declared... The priority rank of influence has been given to Jesus. And he put, it says. The one imparting this top rank is indicated by the personal pronoun he, which goes back to the Father. The first person of the Trinity, the one who sent the Son. The Apostle Paul noticed, just stated that the supremacy of Jesus by his enthronement, now results in his preeminence and his control. There's nothing outside of his control. He's in control of everything. And he put. Having divested himself of his glory, Philippians 2, 6-8, being the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world in John 1, 29, having prayed to the Father, to restore him to the original glory that he had before the world was in John 17, 5. Being raised out from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in Ephesians 1, 21. He's in control. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the priority rank of influence here to Jesus is over all. All things under his feet, it says. Paul is quoting Psalm 8.6. The context of the psalm is the glory of God's creation. Verse 1 through 3 and 5 and others there. But he set his glory above the heavens, the work of his finger, the moon, the stars which he has ordained. 
Even before we were Christians, if we were out in the desert or the mountains where there's not many city lights and you get to see the sky, in Spanish you say estrellado, cracked, because you see so many stars. The lights of the cities hide the stars. But when you look to the heavens and you look at, at, the, at the glorious brilliance of the stars in a real dark area, and you look at the moon, and, and it, it's just amazing God's creation. Nobody would ever think they just happened. Everybody has to ask the question, who made them? How'd they get there? No one would ever believe that they just exploded and landed there. You have to be taught that. Listen, you have to be taught to be stupid. You're creating the image of God. You're smart. You can reason inductively, deductively, critically. God made Adam a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, verse 5 of Psalm 8 says. That control of everything. Now the psalm declares God put all things under the rule, dominion, and control of Adam. In verse 6, what he's quoting. But through the fall, Adam lost absolute and complete dominion God gave him prior to the fall. Yet Adam still had superior dominion over the creation after the fall. But he and the creation was tainted by sin and death now and blinded spiritually by Satan. Satan is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But he's a squatter. Nothing belongs to him. The earth belongs to God. Adam forfeited the complete control and absolute freedom when he sinned. But he still had control of the animals. We still have dominion of animals. All lion tamers aren't Christians. No matter how big those animals are, we can make them do tricks. Because we're creating the image of God, we have greater dominion over them, okay? Paul is quoting the psalm and applying it to Jesus now to confirm the complete universal subordination and subjugation under his feet. But now it's regarding the church in this context. The event or the extent, excuse me, the extent is, notice, all things. It includes total and complete authority over the church. This is how he's applying it. The fulfillment applies to Jesus by the word under. The word hupotasso, if you remember when we studied Ephesians and other places also, that word is a military word that means to line up under a subordinate, a, under an inferior, a, a superior one, one who's of greater rank. So in the service, you know that you salute the rank not the man. The man could be a perfect idiot. You salute the rank, not the man. 
Now the imagery is in the Bible in the conquest of the enemy that was being conquered by placing their foot on their neck. Joshua 10.24 is one of them. When they were conquering the land, they grabbed the kings and they put their foot on their neck, conquering you. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Isaiah 66, 1, Psalm 110, regarding Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 2, 8 applies this to Jesus. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. Listen now. But now we do not yet see all things put under his feet. So, though everything is under his control, we still see a sense of rebellion because he hasn't established his kingdom, right? The complete fulfillment is still in the future then. But though all things seem to be not under his control... They are not out of his control. All right? (laughs) I've told you often, God's not biting his nails. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of waters, and he turns it wherever he wills. The decisions that Obama is making, God's not forcing them to make. The decisions Netanyahu is making, God's not forcing him to make, but God is in control. Because he knows the end from the beginning, he knows what they're going to do. He doesn't force them to do, and everything lines up with this plan. That drives us crazy. Who cares? <laughs> He's in control. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? In Daniel 4.35, after he came back, regained his sanity... And he declared the mighty glory of God. And he says, there's a God in heaven who does as he will. And no one can say, what are you doing? And yet God declared the Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, even unto the ten-nation confederacy with the Antichrist. And yet God never forced Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, or the Caesars to do the evil. So when he judges them, he will hold them responsible for the evil they did in fulfilling his plan. Wow. Evil spirits are subject to God, we've seen already. But they have limits. Even Satan in the book of Job. God is the one that solicited the temptation and testing to Job. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man, upright, hates evil. Look at all you've given him. All right. Touch everything he has, but not him. Joe comes back. He says, blesses you. Blesses the Lord. Lord gives. Lord takes away. Satan and his angels come up again. He says, skin for skin, yea, will a man give all that he has. He says, fine. Touch him, but don't take his life. Limitations. God blessed Job much more than he had. But he went through some difficult times, didn't he? Hmm. A king has influence as the first in rank over his kingdom. Yet, 
There may be a few rebels, but they are not in complete control. That's what's going on right now. Jesus, the God-man and his authority is evident as he is seated at the right hand of God as we've seen. Colossians 1, 15-17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created and are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's before, he's preeminent, number one rank, and everything consists, is held together by him. The atoms, neutrons, protons, electrons, all that stuff. They should repel at some point. The scientists call it, they used to call it nuclear glue. The Bible calls it Jesus. <laughs> Everything solid has a potential of exploding. It should repel. That's what they do when they item bomb. They split the atom. The explosion. Jesus is in complete control of all things without violating individual will. That's very difficult for us to understand because we're not God. If we could understand it, we'd be God. Jesus defeated Satan and his angels as he descended to Hades, as you know. And he preached to the prisoners and delivered them to heaven. Colossians 2.15 tells us, 1 Peter 3.19-21. To demonstrate that he is the preeminent one. There's no greater authority over him. Hebrews 2.9 again says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angel. The same words as in Psalm 2, uh, um, 8, 6 here. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one. Hebrews 2.9 Jesus, the last Adam, died for sinful man and creation and will redeem both of them Romans 8, 20 and 22 tells us. Listen to what it says. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. As you drive out the work from the... East going west in the morning, you see that big gray cloud. Or you fly into Ontario or L.A., you see that big gray dark cloud. That's creation groaning, all the smog, all the pollution. Come back quickly, Lord Jesus. You drive down the, before the freeways in the 60s now, I used to put vines. And all the carbon and dust would just settle on them and it would be a sick green. <laughs> Creation's groaning for the Redeemer. He'll come back and redeem it. First Corinthians 15, 25-27, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he, has, he who put all things under him is accepted. So in other words, there's still rebellion. But there's a lot of things under his control. 
by willful choice, you and I. We used to be rebels against him. We have bowed our knee to him. The redemption of the earth will take place after the white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 21. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earths. The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And Peter, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, puts it this way. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them. It will be burned up. Now, the atom, neutrons, protons, electrons, God will just release them. Fire. But that's after the white throne judgment. He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. When John the Beloved was writing the last book, around 95 A.D., he says in 21, 1 through 5 of Revelation, Now I saw a new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's the millennial kingdom, gone. Also, there are no more seas. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true, faithful, reliable. He spoke it through Isaiah, spoke it through the Lord, spoke it through Peter, spoke it through John. How many times does God have to say it for us to believe? (laughs) The Lordship of Jesus is in view of his preeminence. And as to all things in the church, we're going to see this. This is the context that he's talking about. He is number one. It's not the pastor. It certainly is not you. (laughs) It's not an elite few. Jesus. Notice secondly, the position of Jesus in view of the body of the church comes next. The rest of 22 and the first part of 23. The Apostle Paul declared by virtue of his enthronement with all vested authority and power that Jesus is the ruler of the church. Listen to his words. And he gave him to be head over all things to the church. The one responsible for the ruling position of Jesus once again is the Father. This is indicated by the personal pronoun he. 
That points back to 22, the first portion. The Father and Son are one in the plan of salvation as well as the Holy Spirit, as you know. The Father is the source, the Son is the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the agent. The Father gave the Son to be the head of the church. The word gave there means to give something to someone with the idea of their advantage, for their advantage. Jesus has advantaged us greatly. Jesus has benefited my life tremendously. Jesus was given to me for the good of me, not for the bad of me. <laughs> not to make life worse. Sometimes we go to, oh Lord, what do you do? You know, like the children of Israel, why don't you just kill us? Really? Okay, you want me to kill No, I'm only kidding. We don't mean it. The word gave there is very specific. Jesus being the God-man to benefit the sons and daughters of God, those born again of the gospel. The imagery of the head regards Jesus and indicates certain things. If you think of a head, the head hears for the body, right? My ears are here. The head sees for the body. My eyes are on my head. The head thinks and gives commands to the body. This hand has never told the head what to do in the 65 years I've known him. This hand takes orders, has never rebelled, has always, the finger I tell him to bend, bends. Hand down, hand goes down. Never has any part of my body ever told my head what to do. And never has any part of my body ever complained to my head. In fact, when parts of my body have been hurt or injured, the rest of the members have rushed to help it. When I've stubbed my toe, these two hands are the first down there. Grab that sucker, start rubbing it. These hands are servant to the rest of my body. And they never complain. Wow. What a novel idea. Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 4.15, Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18, Colossians 2.19. They're sister epistles, remember, they were written at the same time. In Ephesians, Jesus is the head of the church. In Colossians, he is the head preeminently over everything. Two different focuses. Notice the extent is overall. The word over, upper, means on behalf or above for the benefit of the willful submission or the one submitting. So it's for my benefit. And he's above me. That's why he can benefit me. All, anyone, everything, anyone. Those that have bowed their knee to him. He's a benefit to the sinner who repents. He's a benefit to the saint who needs to be brought back into fellowship for strength, for wisdom, for knowledge. He's sufficient. Now notice the headship of Jesus is supreme over all authority and control over the church. And the word church, as you know, it's ecclesia. And it's made up of two words, ek, meaning out, and kaleo, to call. So the word was used by the Greeks to describe a civil assembly of people as in Athens that we have in Acts 19. 
characterized by the following. They were citizens with power to declare war, peace, elect generals, and raise funds. They began with prayer and sacrifice. And they later used the word in a wider sense for a convened assembly of citizens, like in the book of Acts, when they were questioned as to their assembly there in Acts 19, 32, 39, 41, where there was that riot at Ephesus due to Paul. So the Greeks used it in that way. This is a term that was brought into the New Testament for the church. The word ecclesia describes the and identifies the people who were, have been, and will be called out of darkness in the world by the Spirit of God to hear the voice of God through the gospel. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not just to call sinners, Mark 2.17. Some translations leave out sinners. Oh, really? Jesus came sinners, sinners. No, he came to call sinners to repentance. To show them their sin. So they can agree with God. And call upon him. Jesus calls a person to respond, not merely believe. For devils believe that at least they tremble, James 2.19 says. The word ecclesia appears 115 times in the New Testament. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. That's why I laugh at church growth, at this whole new methodology of the emergent church, of technology and marketing and all that, to try to add people to the church. Listen to me. If you add one person, you're adding her to the church. The only one that can add people to the church are those that Jesus saves. Then there'll be a benefit to the church. If you attract people by your methodology, by your technology, by your cleverness, by your motivational speaking or whatever it is, you are adding hurt to the church. But if Jesus saves people and he adds them, it will benefit the church. It's real simple. By the way, Jesus walks in the midst or the middle of the seven churches in Revelation 1.13. He's watching everything. He's in control. Notice the beginning of 23, the Apostle Paul identified the nature of the church as the body of Christ. Which is his body. The word body, soma, is a unique metaphor, not ever found in the Old Testament for the people of God. There are other metaphors for the church, as you know, the bride, family, an army, and others. But the body metaphor illustrates diversity in unity. In submission to the authority and the control and direction of the head, Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 5, 23, 30, 32. The head's the one who makes the call. The head's the one who does all these things. It's our submission to him. He is the superior. We're the inferior. Everyone in the church body is different, being comprised of many members, as you know. 
The illustration is ears, hands, feet, legs. Yet, it is one body. Greatest illustration that would never ever be lost or misunderstood is used throughout the scriptures. Our human body. As I gave you the illustration, all these members, they comprise one body. All these members are obedient to one head. All these members have submitted all their life. This is the picture. When we rebel as individuals and we say, well, I don't need to be accountable to anybody. Really? No. We certainly don't want to communicate accountability the way people do in some controlling manner apart from the scriptures. In other words, I don't have to know who you're going to marry. I don't tell you who you're going to marry. You can come for counseling. We'll take you through and we'll suggest maybe we think you guys should wait, but it's up to you. I don't tell you what kind of car you buy. That's up to you. But that we're accountable to each other as brothers and sisters to live to the glory of God and honor Him? Absolutely. As husband and wife, as a family, as a church, as working together in ministry? Absolutely. It's a willful submission with the same oversight of love and care. Not legalism or some kind of dictatorship or, or some kind of eldership that you have to be careful of. Many ministries have gone that way where they have, you know, elders that are leading elders. And, you know, and, and then, you know, they, they, people submit to them and they tell them what to do. And then pretty soon it gets carried away and it gets abusive. No way. People sometimes come to me and say, you know, I'd I, I, I like to know if you could mentor me. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, come to church on Sunday, Sunday evening, midweek, get involved. You'll get all the mentoring you can need. That's how you do it, not one-on-one. God will bring people that you hang out with and do different things, but you, get, you grow in the Lord and you get involved and you're part of the church. That's where your mentoring comes in. Why would you want to limit yourself to one person when you can, you can mentor many more when you're involved with all kinds of people? Through that example. All receive the measure of faith. Romans 12, 3. Every one of us. All have different offices. Romans 12, 4. All have different gifts according to the grace. God dividing severally as He wills and we're to exercise them. Romans 12, 6. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Ephesians 4, 7. All is God's divine sovereign work by His Holy Spirit and the diversity of the church, the body of Christ, which makes the nature of the church, listen, a living organism, not an organization to be run with corporate principles and management principles. It is an organism, living, not an organization. Much of the church today is functioning as a corporation, an organization, They're adding to the church. They're being creative. It's a living organism. He adds to the church daily such as should be saved. Now there is organization, but only that which is found in the Bible. There's to be shared effectiveness. Yet the bigger the church, the easier it is for people to get lost. They hide. They just sit in the chair or the pew and they go in they go out 
The smaller you are, the more accountable you are. It's easy to find you. <laughs> and so some people like to go to big churches, so they just go in and go out. Mmm, like cattle. You're sheep, not cattle. You lead sheep. You drive cattle. You drive sheep, you kill them. You lead them. You feed them. You protect them. All are to see themselves as part of the whole body. Even we, Pasadena here, Calvary Chapel, we're just a small portion of the entire church of Jesus Christ. And a good part of the church is already in heaven. So you've got the church in heaven and the church still on earth. (laughs) All are to recognize their importance for the life of the body. By nature, we're all takers. And through education and some teaching through our parents, we are supposed to be a little more civil and hopefully be a little more benevolent, a little more kinder. But our sin nature is still there. But when we become Christ-like or Christians, then we have to reckon that sinfulness and put it aside every day, every week, every minute. And live as a new creation. It is a decision that I make every day. If I choose me, everybody loses. Now, because we live in such a tweak, psychological, love me world, everybody's so focused and so indoctrinated and so brainwashed into self-esteem. I like myself. And we have little phrases like, well, before I can love others, I have to love me. Listen, you start with you, you'll never have time for anybody else. And if you do, after you get done with you, and you move to someone else, it'll see what you can get for them for you. Welcome to the human race. I must reckon myself dead. I have to realize there's not one good thing in me. And when I start thinking there might be something, I'm listening to me, the world, or Satan. To me, they're the same, the trinity of darkness. I must agree with God. And that doesn't mean that you walk around with, oh, worm comes, so drums, and just no. No, no, no. I know who I am. But I know who I was. And I know that I am by that, what I am by the grace of God. That's on the positive side. Some people quote that verse for their carnality. Well, I am what I am by the grace of God. Like if God wants you to be carnal. Huh? No, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. All that people want me to glory about or give me glory, it's for the glory of God. It's because of Him that I can do what I do or be who I can be. No one else. All are to recognize the privilege of being called by God. Do you remember being in your neighborhood? You were younger, maybe 12, 13, and you had one of the guys in high school down the street and had a Carl Cherry out of 57 Chevy, you know. 
six-inch Astro Supremes on, licks on the back. Just beautiful. Diamond button inside. And um, one day he drives up and he says, Hey, you want, me, you want a ride? You go in the store? I'll get in. Oof. Oh, you got in that car. You, and, and, and he's older. And you're looking. Hey, how, how, how you doing? And, and, and when he dropped you, I said, hey, hey, thanks a lot. You know, let me tell you. You couldn't wait to get whatever you need in the store. You went back. And you wouldn't tell all your friends. Hey, guess who I rode, whose car I rode in today? We get so impressed with man. When's the last time you told somebody, you know, I hung out with God today? Do you know God called me into his kingdom? We get so impressed with each other. We should be ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> Man. Listen to the comment of Weiss, the Greek scholar here. He says, The life of the head flowing through the bands of supply is constantly joining together the causing to grow together the individual members the process being controlled or dominated by the operative energy put forth. The volume or strength of this operative energy coming from the head of the body being determined by the capacity of each part to hold and allow to operate in him or her. This hand is joined together by the wrist. There's ligaments, everything. If this hand is healthy, and those ligaments attach perfectly. This will enhance the strength of the hand by the strength and the health of the arm. And if that arm is attached to the elbow and this likewise, it will be stronger. So every member has a certain amount of strength. But when you start attaching each joint together and you multiply every part, your body becomes 100% strong. You take them individually as small strength. You put them collectively. You've got a powerhouse. This is the church, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. But too often the church acts like a spastic body. Me, myself, and I. What's in it for me? Wow. We must recognize Jesus desires to speak to his church today since it is mentioned throughout various books of the New Testament. In Paul's letters, it is found 62 times. In Acts, 24 times. In Hebrews, twice. In James, one time. In 3 John, three times. Book of Revelation, 20 times. In the Gospels, only three times. Once for church discipline, or twice at church discipline, Matthew 18, 17. And once I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. 62 times. Do you think God is interested in the church? Do you think he wants to direct his church? Do you think he wants to give wisdom to his church? Use his church? Absolutely. The concept and idea in the New Testament is clear and unmistakable. The church belongs to Jesus. Not to the pastor, not to the elders, not to the overseers, not to you, but to Jesus Christ. In fact, the English word that relates the church as his is the Greek word kuriakos, which means belonging to the Lord. 
The word appears twice in the New Testament to identify the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20. And the second to identify Sunday, the day of the Lord, in Revelation 1.10. They belong to him. If you remember, Paul told the Ephesian elders, Christ is the one who purchased the church with his own blood in Acts 20.28, when he was leaving. None of us purchased it. He purchased it with his own blood. We do not own the church. We cannot increase the church. We do not uh, lord over the church or control the church. None of us. The body of Christ is the representative of Christ to the world. All of us have equal standing in the beloved Ephesians 1.6. Aren't you glad that I'm not closer to the Lord than you because of who I am? That we all have equal standing before him. All are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. All are God's handiwork in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10. All are one in Christ. The middle wall of partition has been broken down between the Jew and Gentile or any other cultural difference, racial, economic boundaries in Ephesians 2.14. All of the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The gospel of Christ, Christ being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. All individually and corporately comprise the temple of God, Ephesians 2.21 and 22. All have access to full knowledge about the church, the mystery hidden in Christ for age, from ages till the New Testament came, Ephesians 3.9. All the church is an open display of God's wisdom to the angels in heaven right now, Ephesians 3.10. The angels blow their mind. Because they don't know the future. They're seeing it unfold. They go, wow, look at this. Look what God did here. Ooh, look at that guy. Ooh, man, that guy. You're the trusted God. They're, the angels are blowing their mind. <laughs> All are connected in Christ to each other in order to maximize the efficiency and effectiveness of the body. Ephesians 4.16. Simple illustration. If you've got a family of 10 in a home, that's a lot. If only the mom had to do all the work, she'd be dead in a week. But if everybody does their share, that house is kept up, that house is cleaned up fast, that house is orderly. It's real simple. There's not one member in your body that God has given to you that does nothing. Now, I'm only called to do what God has called me to do, so this hand never walks. Only if the rest of the body is hurting, then I'll drag it. It'll step in on emergencies. So I'm only responding to do what God has called me to do and gifted me to do. So I don't have to go around with guilt. I just do my part and I trust God that you guys are going to do your part. And you're going to put it all together and God's going to get glorified. That's what it's all about. I must recognize if the church and I are going to be directed by God, certain things must take place then. The church needs to be in tune with the mind of God. The head, Jesus Christ. You and I need to be men and women of the word. Listen to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing in grace in your heart to the Lord. Do you walk around like that? I'm not talking about all the time. I'm not talking about being phony. Because your emotions, circumstances, the world, work, people, they're there to bum you out. 
You got to bring your thoughts in captivity. So the word of God has to be in you. If the word of God is not in you, the world will be. Guaranteed. You and I need to be men and women full of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or excess, but be filled continually with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When I, when I used to drink, I didn't drink a case of beer because I was thirsty. And that's not boasting, that's not exaggeration. I would have been dead real young if I kept it up. And when I drank, that stuff did something to me. I submitted myself to its influence. The illustration in Ephesians 5, 18, 19 says, Now, the way I used to submit to that alcohol, submit yourself to the Lord, the influence of the Holy Spirit. It'll get you high. Close to heaven. <laughs> That's what will happen. But it doesn't happen automatically. Third, you and I need to be men and women before Him in prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. In the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 5.18, that's the last part of the armor. Prayer. The Word. Men and women of the Word. Filled with the Spirit of God. Prayer. Not when I'm in trouble. Not when things are bad. All the time. Striving to glorify God, not man or self. Recognizing that in our independence, we need one another. Understanding that in our interrelations, we affect one another. Just think what would happen if I were not committed adultery next week. That affect you? You know how many people I would affect? 42 years. You know what heavy judgments on my life? To those who much is given, much more is required, right? Pretty heavy. Some believe it doesn't matter how you people live. Yet do any of us believe that any member of the family can live with the way they want and it's not going to affect the family? Of course not. All it takes is one little two-year-old. Turn that house upside down. It's real simple. The Lordship of Jesus is in view of His position of head to the church. Nor this thirdly, the last of 23. The person of Jesus in view of the body of the church. Notice first the Apostle Paul declared that his body, the church, completes Jesus. That's a mind blower. Listen to the words. The fullness of him. The metaphor Paul has given is twofold. The head, Christ, Jesus. The body, the people saved. In a way that we do not understand or able to comprehend the church 
brings a sense of completion to Christ, the head. The word fullness there, plamora, means to fill up or complete. It's used of a ship fully supplied for its journey. It's used for the completion of you and I by Christ in Colossians 2.9, same word. Not that Christ is deficient or incomplete in himself, but that Christ refuses to see himself as complete without his bride. Not that the church adds to him as creator, redeemer, but as a groom, Jesus is incomplete without his bride. The compliment to him as a bride to a husband. When your wife is gone, your husband is gone for a long time. Something's missing. Unless it's a blessing that they're gone. And when you're not a good relationship, it's a blessing. You're only going to be gone two weeks? Did you make it three? But you don't feel complete, right? Christ refuses to see himself as complete until the full number of those who will be saved from their sins come into the church. Jesus began to collect his bride in the church during his earthly ministry. He commissioned the twelve and others to preach the gospel in the first century to bring in more. And Jesus has been saving people since that day, all these two centuries, adding to the church those who repent. Acts 2, 46-47 says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Romans eleven twenty five says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant about this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentile comes in. The full number of people to be saved till the rapture happens. When that last person, we're out of here. Then the Antichrist will appear. The apostle declared the reason. Notice, Jesus is the one responsible for everything. Who fills all in all. Paul is continuing to speak about the body of Christ, the church, not the universe or everything he created. It's the church. Jesus called evangelists, pastor teachers, and all the other people. He does it. Jesus gives gifts to each member in the body. Jesus nourishes, develops, and matures each individual, called the priesthood of the believer. Jesus gives all power and authority to the church and the individuals to act in accord to his word. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said in John fifteen five. Notice Paul is stating that every believer is able to be all Jesus has called and equipped them to be in the church in their life. I've told you often, a Christian can never say, I cannot. All I can say is, I will not.
I don't want to forgive. I don't want to be open. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to obey. I don't, you fill in the blank. But if I'm saved, I have the potential. You as a father and a mother ask of your children only things that you know they can do. And when they refuse to do it, it makes you mad. Because you know they can do it, right? It's simple. John tells us we are kings and priests where Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests unto God. Literally a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1.6. Yet despite this truth, there are many in the church that have allowed a separation and division between clergy and laity. Again, ruling people. That should never be. Thinking that the pastor is the only one that um, can perform ministry or do certain things. No. We encourage everybody to do so. John Wesley was uh, confronted by the Anglican Church when he began to ordain people who were called and anointed of God. Preached the gospel in the open fields. Wow. It had never been done. Martin Luther withstood Rome not only on justification of faith, but on the clear distinction between clergy and laity as a form of elitism by teaching that the priests were in greater favor with God than the average person. Pastor Chuck Smith received much opposition when he opened his heart and the hippies um, that started coming, even ordaining some of them to be pastors. (laughs) You cannot have a vine without branches. A shepherd without sheep. A captain without soldiers. So you cannot have a head without a body. You just can't. So you and I must seek to be filled by Christ every day. That you and I may be all that we can be. Paul put it this way. Philippians 4, 8-14. But what things were gained to me, these things I have come and lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, um, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, manure, piles of fertilizer, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ. The righteousness, but, um, righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, here and now, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, out from it, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, here's what hinders us. Ready? Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to things that are ahead, I press towards the goal, the prize, the high upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The reason I can't go ahead is I'm looking backwards. My regrets or my heart's back in the world or whatever it may be, you fill in the blank. If you don't believe that, when you get out of here, get in your car and try to drive home looking backwards. See how far you get. Jesus died for the church. Jesus intercedes for the church. Jesus provides for the church. Jesus defends the church. Jesus grows and develops the church. Jesus equips the church. Jesus will return for his church. 
Jesus completes us. In Him you're complete. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Ephesians or Colossians 2, 9 and 10. The body is the fullness of Jesus at the same time. That is why Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Listen, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. The parallel. Husband and wife marriage. Christ and the church. What a mystery. You can't separate it. The Lordship of Jesus is in view of His person to the body of the church. Now you understand why chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the wealth of the believer? The wealth of the believer by the love of God. Paul ends his prayer with the Lordship of Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus is a view of his preeminence to all things in the church. The Lordship of Jesus in view of his position of head to the church. The Lordship of Jesus is in view of his person to the body of the church. He rules. God rules. We all bow, we all serve. And he gets all the glory. Can you handle those rules? <laughs> Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness, Lord. Lord, help us to yield to you more, Lord. We just fall in love with you and, Lord, we keep ourselves in close fellowship with you. And Lord, the minute we start feeling astray or drawn, that we would just turn to you and ask forgiveness and strength and that you would just direct us, Lord. That we might be that light to those around us. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died on the cross and rose from the dead, then you can be saved. You might be over the internet, might hear. This is your prayer repentance. If you want to accept Him, if you believe that He died for you, and that He can forgive you. He'll make you born again right now. Bury your sins in the deepest ocean and make you His child. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you. As my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.